Comfort, comfort to you, God's people, says Isaiah the prophet. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. That's such a great sentence, isn't it? Just think about that sentence for a second and just see how every single word in there is nothing but a gospel message from Isaiah. Comfort, comfort, my people. Something that God's people really needed at this time to hear after chapters and chapters from Isaiah about rebuking from God and about prophecies of Babylon coming to take them into captivity and exile, God uh, threatening them because of their sins and disciplining them because of their sins as they turn from him and turn from the commands that they promised to follow. They hear their God come to them with comfort, comfort, my people. And even after all of that faithlessness, even after all of the slapping God in the face with idols, and after all of the things that they've done to dishonor and disobey their God, God still calls them his people, and he calls himself their God. Chapter 40 in Isaiah is a turning point. You know, the first 39 chapters up till now, while sprinkled with hope, have a lot of rebuke in them, and have a lot of uh, discipline, and a lot of threats of punishment from Babylonians because of all the sins of Israel. But chapter 40 begins a turning point where Isaiah really now focuses on the hope that the Jews have because of God's grace, and because he calls them his people. Not once, but twice, he speaks of comfort, comfort, to stress that they can still expect him to keep his promises to them. To live up to the name that he gave them in Exodus when he said, I am a God. I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. They would always, because of God's promise, those faithful, even regardless of their sins through faith, they would be God's people. God never intended that they think he would ever wash his hands of them and ever turn his back on his people, even with the discipline about to come with Babylon. No, he would still hold on to them. He would still keep them. He would still protect them. And in fact, he even says to Isaiah, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, or literally speak to their heart is what it says. He says, speak to the heart of my people and tell them that their heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Whatever they did, God was going to wipe clean. Whatever they did, for all the grief and the pain that they caused their God, he was going to forget about it, and put it behind his back, as he says in Hebrews. For all of their refusing to listen, for all of their faithlessness, he would remain faithful and forgive them their sins. And whatever they suffered in bondage as they were about to be under bondage under the Babylonians, God was going to free them. He threatened to punish them double for their sins in Jeremiah. He said in Jeremiah 16, I'll repay them double for their wickedness and their sin because they've defiled my land with lifeless forms of their vile images and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols but here he promises 
a double blessing for them. Calls to mind the words of Paul as he says, as sin increased, grace increased all the more. God's grace was going to be an abundant supply for his people as he forgives their sins. And as he reminds them of the covenant that he made with them, they needed this. They needed to know that God was still going to come and make things right for them because after being rebuked all this time, after being told the Babylonians would take them into exile, after hearing God talk like he did in Jeremiah about punishing them double for their sins, they needed to hear of God's grace and forgiveness. They needed to hear of that love and that compassion from their God. To know that their sins would be forgiven. To know that they would stand right before God and that he would free them. It's interesting how God speaks of this as if it's already done. Your, your sins are forgiven. Whatever you owe, it's been, it's been paid. When really this is way off in the future yet. yet you know, the king of Persia 70 years later is going to come and allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and free them from their captivity. But Cyrus isn't even been born. The Persians haven't been on the rise yet. They haven't even gone into captivity yet. And yet here God speaks as if this is already done because the forgiveness of sins through faith in their coming Savior was as good as done in the eyes of God. And hence, their sins would be forgiven and their time of hard service has been completed and the Lord's hand has given them double for all of their sins. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Isaiah speaks this to you as well, even thousands and thousands of years later. You and I have seen the Messiah come. And while we weren't in bondage to the Babylonians, we were in the same bondage that the Jews were under as well. The worst bondage, the bondage to sin. There was nothing else that we could do about it. There was nothing else that uh, we knew how to do. I mean, we were shackled up. Only knowing how to sin, only knowing how to turn our backs to the God who had created us and loved us and wants better for us. And even for those of us who have been trapped in sin, God comes and he says, comfort, comfort my people. He still claims you as his own, just as he did the Jews who were going to go into captivity in Babylon. We too were in the same debt that they were that we couldn't pay. We too were in bondage and we too had no way to get out of it. And yet he speaks to us knowing that it's finished. He speaks to us telling us that our debt has been paid. That there is nothing left. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you need to do. Grace is the key in all of this. There was nothing that God's people then or today can do to free themselves from the bondage of sin. And God says that when he has Isaiah speak to the Jews and say, All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass, grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You know, this world is full of people who have tried to achieve great things. 
And people have. They make it in the history books. They get statues made out of them. They get buildings named after them. But think about it. Even the greatest people in history eventually will fade. At some point, those buildings just become buildings with another person's name on it. Statue just becomes another beautiful statue in front of a building, and the name doesn't mean a whole lot. People in history books get taken out and replaced with other names, or they just become a little blip in history as time goes on and more and more things happen. Human achievements always fade. How much more than the achievements that sinners tried to produce before God, who, who, who don't try to make a, a name for themselves here and now, but a name for themselves in eternity. How much more do those fade before a just and righteous God who punishes sin? Where we stand. That's where our achievements before God will always stand. Our works before God don't mean anything to pay for our sins. They mean nothing, and yet, and yet we have trouble with that. I mean, how, how often do we not pat ourselves on the back because of the good things that we've done? How often do we, we worry and doubt the grace of God and still think to ourselves, I, I, I have to do something. If I can do something, I'll feel better about myself because apparently the grace of God just isn't enough to bring joy to our soul. Or maybe it's apathy. Apathy that sits in our heart and we go to church and we, 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 we go to the uh, Bible class and Throughout the rest of the week, we don't really do a whole lot wrong, so I'm obviously just fine before the Lord, and you don't really recognize how worthless you are. Pride is behind every single one of those. And that's exactly what Isaiah talks about as he tells the Jews to look forward to the coming Messiah. That's what John talks about when he tells the people to repent before the coming Messiah. When they say that all the ways should be made low, the hills and the mountains brought down, the valleys filled in, all the ways made straight. Every time we, we put up a, a self-righteous attitude in our heart, all we really are doing is refusing the need for Christ. Every time we do that, a hill goes up, a valley gets dug out again, a straight path becomes even more crooked. And repentance is wrong. The heart of repentance is to realize how worthless we are. And to realize that we are nothing unless Jesus makes us something. To realize that our achievements will only fade as we stand before the Lord when he returns. Unless those achievements are built upon Christ and what he's done for you and for me. Did we wither? And we fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The words that say he became nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The one who became sin, who had no sins, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Even the word here in Isaiah that says, Here is your God, the sovereign Lord comes with power and rules of the mighty arm. His reward is with him for his people. And for his people, that reward is that he shall bring him in like a shepherd and hold him close to his heart. He wants to hold you. He wants you. 
He wants you close to himself. He wants to save you, and he wants you to realize that he makes you everything. And that he frees you from the bondage of sin. There's your comfort. Your comfort's in Christ. You don't go to bed at night feeling comfortable because of how well you've done. You go to bed at night comfortable knowing that Jesus Christ has saved you. You don't go to bed praising God for being his people because of all the great things you do, but because that Christ has made you his children. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, not in yourselves, but because Christ has made it so. That's what the Jews were to look forward to. That's what John was telling the people, too, before the Messiah came. He said, repent. Look not to yourselves. Get rid of all the obstacles that you put up that keep Christ from your heart, but, but realize that Christ is what you need. Christ is everything. Or we are nothing. Comfort, comfort my people. Verse 1 is nothing but pure gospel in every sense of the word. It really is. Let's come hear the gospel as often as we can so the gospel doesn't get pushed out of the way of our hearts and, and instead pushed out with hills and valleys. But let the Holy Spirit put those valleys and hills down. Let the Holy Spirit work in your hearts as you remember your baptism which lowered all the hills and valleys so that before God you might be his child. Let, let the word, or the Holy Spirit work through the word so that he can fill in those valleys and make straight the ways so that God can come into your heart and claim you as his own instead of pushing him away with your self-righteousness. So when he returns, he can take you to his side. He can be that, that shepherd that carries you close to his heart. Comfort, comfort my people. Great words as we come to the birth of our Savior in a few weeks. Knowing that as he came down to be uncomfortable, our comfort shall always be solid and steady in him. So that as we think of our sins, as we feel guilt or as we feel pain or as we feel the consequences of sin in this world, we might still be comfortable because of Jesus. We need that word. We need to hear those words from Christ as that day draws nearer and nearer so that we might rejoice all the more, not in ourselves or in our daily lives, but in what he has done. And to grow in our faith so that, as, as Peter says, we can live as spotless, blameless, and be at peace with him. That's comfort. That's where we find comfort. It'll always be missing no matter what else you eat. You feel good about yourself. But comfort's different than feeling good. You go home at night, I'm sure you all have a specific place that you like to sit in the evening. Maybe you read a book or watch TV or, or go on your phones. It's usually the same place where you be comfortable for the evening, where you can relax. It's not the same. As dumb as it sounds, it's not the same as sitting in the chair that's just across the room. It's not your spot. That's not where you're comfortable in the evening. You can be happy. You can be on your phone. 
you might be comfortable in the sense that it's a soft chair, but we don't want to go to our places. Our place where we where we sit every night, where we get out our phone and our book and, and we read and we, we even fall asleep until 2 a.m. once in a while with our book falling out of the floor. There are places where you can try to find comfort, but real comfort is going to be that one place, Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit always give us strength. May the Holy Spirit always work in our hearts to lower those obstacles in our hearts. That as the day approaches, Christ can enter in and take us to be in his side. Amen.